OTB Sports Rugby. Ross at 10. Probably the media were a bit harsh on him over the last few years because from what I saw inside the doors, somebody who's calm and can make plays happen. Everyone, I think, is really comfortable with him. Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. You ain't shit! I wish I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass. But fans can be the harshest critics, you know. And they often are. A wife is often the harshest critic <laughs> of her husband. <laughs> I thought I was invincible. That's what you're, you're trained to believe as a sports person. There was four million people in Ireland who knew much more about managing <laughs> football teams than I did. When it comes to music, I can spoof it the best. Your sporting career is the best time you'll have. And, you know, you have to hang on to it for as long as your life because everything else is pretty crappy. And this is not lies. Stephen Rochard has never spoken to Jimmy McGinnis in his life. And this is Off The Ball Saturday on News Talk. John Duggan with you 3 to 5. You can text us 53106. We're streaming the conversation as well. You can listen on News Talk across the country, but also watch us if you'd like on the Off The Ball digital and social channels on YouTube, Facebook, the OTB Sports app, and on Twitter. Ulster, by the way, 3119 ahead against the Sharks in the United Rugby Championship. This is the panel. This week we're discussing the hot topics in sport right now with the former All-Ireland winner with the Camogie team of Cork and the ex-Dublin Camogie and Cork City player Sarah O'Donovan and the Irish independent sports writer Conor McKeown. Sarah and Connor, you're both very welcome to the studio. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Good to see you both. And we're going to start with the big show that's kicking off at 2.50 in Ireland, Italy, in the Six Nations in Rome. We're looking for three out of three. We should win. If we don't win, it'd be an absolute disaster, wouldn't it? Uh, like It can be clearly argued, I think, Connor, that we're the number one team in the world. Uh, we're the top-ranked team. We beat the world champions in Africa last year. We've just beaten the Grand Slam champions in France. We beat New Zealand down in a tour last year. Uh, Andy Farrell's team seems to have a degree, huge degree of depth. So uh, whether we win the Six Nations or not, there's going to be a, a huge degree of expectation around the World Cup leading into that. And it just seems that everything at the moment is building towards this massive crescendo later in the year. It'll be something for us to manage, uh, not only Scotland and England ahead, but then what's come to come beyond that, you know? Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'd be very interested to um, <clears throat> to get a handle on wh- how, how they plan to address that. Because as you said, like if Ireland do win the Six Nations in a Rugby World Cup year, not only does the expectation level, I think, ramp up to a very high level, I think a lot of the echoes of what happened in the World Cup in the past coloured the conversation. And that becomes an issue too. And I'm just, I'm interested that Gary Keegan is the performance um, coach with the Irish rugby team. I read an interview with Gary Keegan a few years ago um, with Dennis Walsh, where he discussed his work with the Dublin football team between 2015 and 19. And he spoke about how they addressed the five in a row at the start of 2019. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he, he said, you know, the best teams are the ones that problem solve the most efficiently. That's the nature of elite level sports. You're constantly problem solving. And to do that, what you first have to do is accept the problem and address the problem. You don't you don't ignore the elephant in the room. You, you kind of go in and, and tug it by its tail. And he said that they just addressed it very early in the year and said, right, like, what is this? It's expectation. It's history. What does that look like? How does that manifest itself? Where will we where will we experience that? How might it affect our focus on what we're actually trying to do? And I would just imagine that if Gary Keegan is working with the Irish rugby team and he is uh, in the same role, if Ireland win the Six Nations this year, and even if they don't, because, you know, the France victory, I think, has, has probably 
sustain that level of expectation from the New Zealand and the South Africa wins. But I think they'll address that pretty soon afterwards because it's a long lead into the World Cup. There will be very little to talk about from an international rugby point of view between the end of the Six Nations and the start of the World Cup. And that will be filled very much with talk that Ireland could possibly win it. So to the uninitiated people who don't know, he was involved in Irish boxing for years. Yeah, he was the high performance director director with Irish boxing. tends not to attract a whole lot of attention to himself. You know, I think very few people would have known that he was with the Dublin footballers for those five years. But he was with Tipperary Hurlers before that when they won a Hurling All-Ireland. He's with the Cork Hurlers, I think, in two different stages as well. Is he a mind guy? Yeah, I think it's... I think a lot of people would scoff at the, the idea of performance coach, but it's only a it's only a kind of an adaptation or a, or a broadening of the role of team psychologists, you know. Um and I think that becomes very important when you're trying to do something like win multiple All-Irelands or win a World Cup. You know, you, you, you tend to find when you're just as a journalist, when you speak to teams that are very successful, when you speak to different players, you you, you kind of get a sense that they all have a very collective mindset, you know, like in as much as everybody in a panel or a squad can be feeling the same thing at the same time as impossible. Some will be, have more confidence than others. Some will be in better form. Some will be, you know, disenfranchised. Some won't. But everybody will have a sense of, you know, what are we here to do? How are we going to do it? What are the things that might be able to distract us? What are the things that we don't do? And it's the most overused word, I think, in, in sports analysis at the moment. But that culture, you know, the behaviours that happen automatically, I think that's something that somebody like Gary Keegan will be very proactive about implementing in that squad. Seven changes for the game. Gary Ringrose's latest to go. But there is almost an atmosphere of so what about this with the Irish rugby management and coaches. Uh, like we just have to deal with it and deal with that, as, as Connor said positively. I agree. I think the game is probably a game that everyone's looking to get over as and and through without any injuries. Um, from the I suppose those who travelled, there seems to be great atmosphere over there. Uh, both RT and you know off the ball have, have sent people over, and it's kind of one of those games that you're looking at depth, aren't you? You're looking at players who are getting opportunities to come in, and you're looking to see can we get through? I suppose without making many mistakes I think an overall performance and you know key point here is Ross Byrne isn't it yes I think that's is there too much put in the number 10 is it because Johnny is so pivotal and because of Raj before him was the key man or is it just because simply because it's the the most important position on the pitch I think it's the most important position on the pitch and if you look at last night the under 20s Sam Prendergast seven conversions stunning performance man of the match and I think it was Fiona Cochran was speaking afterwards saying you know inevitably if your number 10 plays well he gets the player of the match because that is the most important position on the pitch so it's pivotal that's the one you look at The mind then and the performance coaches were there people in Cork and in Dublin or people you've seen along the way that have done this right? Yes um, I agree with the idea of a performance coach from both the player level and a management level because sometimes there's things and that confidence piece that you're talking about, different players are at different levels in terms of their confidence at different stages in the season. I don't not want to necessarily tell the manager that I'm not feeling it, but I would be comfortable telling a performance coach, I'm not feeling great today. And they'll have a conversation in the background and you can go out and give a different kind of perception of yourself on the pitch and you can have an outlet where you can be vulnerable. And I imagine in that Dublin team that you're talking about, that incredibly successful Dublin team, and you had people like Owen O'Gara, Paddy Andrews, these players who were looking to try and break in, they needed an outlet. And Kevin McMenamin, no more than anyone, has been very vocal about his, I suppose, turn with the team and actually has gone into that environment since and is involved with the boxing, with Irish boxing in the last number of years. Those players needed an outlet 
and it wasn't going to be Jim Gavin that you were telling that you were feeling a little vulnerable. So certainly I think there's a place for it in high level sport now. Very good. So we're expecting a straightforward win today. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, like I, when the fixtures come out, you nearly kind of look at it as a like there wasn't a huge buzz building up to this game this week. You know, in, in the there's no great expectation that that's that doesn't happen with the fixtures against Italy because there's an assumption I think that Ireland are going to win. Um, it's almost more reflective of when things are bad. So Declan Kidney really it was all over when we lost Italy ten years ago in Rome. That was it then. Yeah, and but, but like we, people have to remember, like Italy beat. Australia last year you Wales. Know, they've beaten Wales as well within the last little while um, and I think it's one of those cycles with Italian rugby for whatever reason that just when the national team reached that point where there's a natural debate about their participation in the Six Nations they tend to come up with one of these big wins from nowhere but uh, I think it would be a massive shock if it happened You have today. to admire them though you know that under 20 Italy team have lost 3 from 3 last night but they were playing you know, like they really, really wanted it. So you have to admire players in that situation who are pushing um, to keep it, I suppose, to keep themselves in the Six Nations across those two age groups. So we have that at 2.15. We'll keep you right up to speed, folks, on what's happening as it unfolds. Many things to talk about, including, I think this was a very interesting story. Explain what's happening, Connor, with the Camogie All-Stars being held in Canada in May, just before the championship starts. So it was only officially announced, I think, uh, not Friday, gone the Friday before by the Camogie Association that um, I think this is the first Camogie All-Stars tour since the lockdown. And it's the third Camogie tour that has All-Stars tour that has happened ever. And the previous two were in November. Um, And this year's one is going to be between uh, May 19th and May 25th. Um, And it's going to be to Calgary in Canada. But the the provincial championships start the following week. and seven of the Cork players, the, sorry, the seven Cork players who would uh, have been due to travel all withdrew their services. Um, this was confirmed by Ashley Thompson during the week. Um, and the point that Ashley Thompson made was that, you know, f- the reason that those players got All-Stars is because they have teammates around them. And for them to take a week off the week before the championship starts uh, is doing a disservice to their teammates. Um now, I spoke to people kind of on all sides, just chasing the story during the week. And so the Camogie Association, obviously not in the studio today. What is their thinking? Because it doesn't seem to be very rational to the uh, outside observer. Uh, well, so the reasons that, that, that a spokesperson gave to me was, first of all, that um, I suppose the nub of this really is that the players weren't consulted about the dates. They were told about the dates. And I think if they had been consulted about the dates and the GPA were consulted either, who would have been a representative of the players in this situation, you'd imagine that there would have been a certain amount of pushback. But it seems that the Camogie Association went and put together the logistics of this trip and then informed the players as to when it would be on. But given the proximity of the trip to the first round of the championship, you would imagine that any organisation would at least consult the players before telling them that it was on. Um, now, the Camogie Association is saying that, you know, the plans are already in place. There are teams that are travelling up from America to play in a tournament the day before. It's more than just a single match. It's a whole kind of festival of uh, Camogie in and around that time. That because of the split season, they didn't want to um, interrupt the club season by having it in November. And that November wouldn't be a very... Uh, good time of year to have a camogie exhibition match in Canada anyway Um, but in all of this it's the lack of consultation with players um, which 
is the thing that strikes you the most. And as Sarah pointed out, this comes very, very quickly on the heels of the recent controversy for the final of the Ashbourne Cup, where one of the colleges, UL, had one game left to play in their group. They needed to overcome a massive scoring difference. I think it was 34 points. They rang the third level Camogie Association just to clarify exactly how many points they needed. Um, because on the published tables, it, they calculated that they need 34 points. Remarkably, they won by 35 points to qualify for the semifinals and were then informed, I think, two days before the semifinals that in fact they'd been given the wrong total that they needed to overhaul and they needed to win by 38 and were thrown out of the were thrown out of the Ashbourne Cup now like that's at the elite level of third level camogie um, and that's a failure somewhere along the line and um, they weren't like the, the the third level this is my understanding Sarah mm. it, you can you can jump in anywhere here just correct me but when the appeal came to the camogie association or to the third level camogie association they basically uh, kicked it up to the um, the hearings committee of the overall Camogie Association. So straight away, it's on the desk of the Camogie Association, um, and the way that they handled it definitely wasn't to um, any sort of fairness to UL. So I think between these two stories, and you know, when something like this happens, we always link it back to well, what would happen if it was the GAA and this was you know men's intercounty teams, or this was. Uh, Fitzgibbon an umbre- well, uh, but it was, if there was an umbrella organisation would it be any better well, I think that's the point the issue here is that the sponsorship aspects of the Camogie Association have gone under the GA umbrella in the last year so the Camogie Association are getting more sponsorship opportunities they've just announced a big one with Alliance um, because they've gone in under the guise of the GA I think from the point of view of the players and the management of the teams that are involved this year it was simply a non-runner that you would consider that a week before your championships commence, a plane load of the best players in the country are heading off on a Figari to Canada. And, you know... Which they deserve, by the way. Absolutely deserve it. But those That's th- a frustrating thing because you want to have that. You want to have that for once in a lifetime maybe chance to go away. And I, I think that once in a lifetime chance has changed now. Has like it? The likes of Amy O'Connor, who's the core captain... Uh, went travelling last year and this is only Instagram but you know she was in America she was in Miami you know these players are choosing to travel at times in the year where it's not impacting their performance these are players whose nutrition is on point for 10 to 12 15 weeks before a championship season commences they have sleep trackers they have load management these are all things that they've planned out since the previous November December January and you know because you're coaching in this sphere exactly and for the for for the Camogie Association to assume that these players would be able to plug out of their championship preparations for one week, go to a, you know another country, it's eight hours flight away, and then plug back in and perform a week later is incredibly naive. At a very base level, I just find it bonkers. And what's disappointing is, and it's something that I heard a couple of weeks ago, um, the Munster Championship. Men's Month Championship is obviously one of the pinnacle championships in in the country and has massive uh, spectatorship and, you know, we've got genuine, I suppose, interest in it. And the Camogie Championship, the Munster Camogie Championship was being given an opportunity to go in as a double header under the under the men's uh, championship games, increased spectators, you know, good atmospheres. And it's falling in the same two weeks as the Camogie 
are supposed to go to Canada, so it became a non-runner. Now, if you ask me, would Ashley Thompson, Amy O'Connor, um, Laura Tracy, the, all of these girls who are supposed to go on a plane to Canada, would they prefer to be playing in Thurles in Semple Stadium, you know, against Limerick an hour before Cork play Limerick in the Munster Championship? 100%. That was the opportunity that they've missed because the Camogie have gone on this tangent. Uh, the, these issues would they would they be more easily solved? And uh, it is Tom Ryan's ambition, and Mary McAleese has got a task force going to have the, the amalgamation of the associations. Would these things be ironed out on a smoother level? Do you think if we had the central leadership? But because we had a month of Kilmacud Glen at the start of the year <laughs> in the men's game, it just seems to me there's issues in GA and there's issues in all sports. But is there a way of getting a better process around these issues so they they don't keep arising? And the years time might be talking about some other controversy. Well, I'm not sure that this particular controversy would have happened if they were under the same umbrella. Um, I My sense of it is that players in the GAA, inter-county players in the GAA, have a far greater standing within their organisation than Camogie players do with the Camogie Association. That would be my read of it. That would be a very fair assumption right now, based on the last month and a half in Camogie, yeah. Yeah, you would imagine that play, like players have not. I wouldn't say that they've leveraged the, the, their power, but like through the you know the strikes and all the fall mm. and all the things that had to happen, all the you know the little forest fires that had to happen f- fifteen years ago. Um, I think we're in a much better place for that, and there, there tends to be a high level of consultation between the GAA and the GPA when when these things happen. And the GPA serves a very good function there. It, it means that the the forest fires and the friction can happen between a representative player's body and an organ an organising committee without the players really having to, you know, fight on the front line, if you want to put it that way. But on this occasion, quite simply, the GPA were not con- consulted and neither were any of the because players. Because the women's GPA are now in with the... Yes. GPA. And you have people like Conor Myler, you know, communicating during the week that he thinks this is ludicrous and he's looking at it from the point of view of an inter-county player and he's seeing women and men in the same in the same sphere and looking at the same championships and that's where the consultation needed to happen John. Yeah, it's worth pointing out though as well like last week or was it the week before we had instances of players in Armagh being vocal about the fact that they mm-hmm. hadn't received any expenses for the first three or was it four months since they they went back training in November and, and it was you know whatever the middle of February and they hadn't so it's not as if ev- everything at GAA in the men's game it runs particularly smoothly they do hit speed bumps along the way but this seems to be particularly sort of gregarious I would be surprised if the other counties don't row in now I can't see Kilkenny going to the All-Stars in Canada if Cork don't go I think it's a statement of intent. Which would be an embarrassing situation. It would, and the commercial aspect of the men's side is, I don't think a sponsor would send a plane to Canada if the best players weren't on it. I'm interested, uh, not completely related, but Jarlett Burns is going to be the new president of the GAA, Connor. Um, What does he need to impactfully do when he gets that role? Because... Um, I've seen certain columnists and journalists arguing that there might be a bit of a de- leadership deficit in the uh, association at the moment. It's a very, very complex question, Sean, because <laughs> like the, the, the people talk about a leadership deficit, but if anything in the GA, you just you, you actually have too many na- leaders. You know, you're like recently when they published the um, the annual reports in Crow Park and the GA leadership were sitting side by side. And naturally enough, the, the Glenn Croaks issue was put to them 
um, they were very vehement. Tom Ryan was very vehement. Uh, Larry McCarthy was very vehement as well. And they said, look, but the, the, the way the GA is built, every issue will fall on the desk of a particular committee because that is the process by which it is handled. And they couldn't really oversee their powers. They couldn't supersede their own powers by saying, OK, well, this one is an all Ireland final. And it, it, so we have to swoop in and overrule everybody and make a grand CEO decision. style. Yeah, CEO style. That's just <laughs> not what is done in the GAA. Now, I understand when something like that happens, there's an argument that there should be a sort of highest power with, you know, with the ability and the facility to discard the rule book and use cop on and come to a decision that most people would find to be the right one. But the problem is in the GAA, you, you leave yourself open to having that decision appealed a hearing, the DRA, everything else. So in situations like this, the GAA do have to do everything by the book. They can only defer to the committee that has the authority to deal with whatever that situation is. And in the GAA's case, it was the CCC. And the CCC said that in this situation where the referee's report was filed and the result um, was put into um, put into officialdom, it would take an appeal from the losing team. Now, not many of us agreed with that. We thought that Glenn was being put, being put in a very difficult position. Um, but that is how that that that's how that that process kind of kicks on to the next. I'm just level. getting from all this. This is a much more complex organisation than it maybe should be. Yeah, it probably is. That's probably fair enough. And even the question on Jarla Burns. You know, I remember when Nicky Bren- Brennan was president. I'm not sure how long ago that was. Mid nineties. Mid nineties. But Nicky had this. I won't say a dream, but definitely. Uh, he had this idea that the role of the GA president should be far more of a figurehead one than a policy driver. Um, And I saw a lot of sense in that because to have somebody to come in who has all these notional powers because they do appoint all the committees like the the chairman of the CCC currently sitting has been appointed by Larry McCarthy, etc, etc. But to have that on a rotation basis every three years doesn't make any sense because any good policy is going to be more than three years in duration. So if if, if John Duggan is the president of the GAA and he does something for three years and then I... I didn't know, but uh, thanks. <laughs> uh, yeah, so. You're the Uchtaran Tuffa. And then yeah. Sarah takes over in three years' time and thinks everything you did is wrong. All, you know, you're, you kind of tend to go around in circles. So the question of what Charlotte Burns needs to do I don't really know. It, it's it, it, you know, the, the really interesting one for me is what he said about the border poll. You know, the GA had to take a strong position on that, that it was incumbent on civic organisations in this country, that it, in the event of a border poll, they will have to take that. I think that that is a very interesting thing for a GA president to come out with because it would be going against the GAA's position by its own insistence that it's an apolitical organisation in these sort of matters. So it would be very interesting. Like Martin Brehney, who knows far more about these things than probably anybody, Everybody, yeah. said during the week that you're, the year of a lead-in, which if people don't know, when you're elected to be GA president, you have a year um, before you start the job. So Gerald Burns will start out in a year's time. He reckons that that's nearly more important than the term itself. You're nearly kind of teeing up the work that you're going to do there. But, but specifically what that is, I still don't really know. Just before we go to the break, uh, the state of the nation around the teams in the leagues at the moment. Uh, we'll talk about the ladies football and, and Camogie League after the break, Sarah. But Ross Common, uh, Connor, seems to be the the team that are maybe surprising a few people at the moment. Yeah, they did this a few years ago in 2016 and, 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 and set off. And um, I think they won. They finished third in 2016. And I think kind of the season caught up on them a small bit. Um, they had started off a little bit faster than everyone else. 
there might be something similar in that as well but like they look they're a very good team with a lot of good forwards um, which is like Davy Burke has I think probably a, a variety of forwards that a lot of inter-county managers would really like to have they have players who can run they have players who can score from distance they have players who are good sitting in the pocket um, and they've got goal scorers as well and he seems there's going to be a connection between what they do say if they get to a league final or win a league and the championship but given the nature now that everything is finished by July do you have to be in a, in a space of momentum now more earlier in the year I think it depends on the county you know I think we look back on this league and I think what teams are doing now will be only able to figure out when we see what comes into the championship but you have to remember for us common so for each of the last seven years they've either been promoted or relegated so staying in Division 1 is a big thing for Roscommon but equally they're on the same side of the draw in Connacht as Mayo and Galway um, that's a very top heavy provincial draw so you know whatever way they finish the league they will more than likely start in the championship and however they start in the championship in that first game will define their entire season Are the Dubs using their Division 2 run well? Jack McCaffrey's back yeah, um, wasn't well. They're trying a lot of players, which they probably wouldn't have had a great chance to do in Division One. Maybe they would have done it anyway. Um, but the big issue with, with in Dublin is that the, the players that are coming through are good squad players. You know that they're kind of filling in some of the gaps, um, maybe on the bench. Um, but in terms of breakthrough onto the starting fifteen, it's you know like the big developments for this year with Dublin are Jack McCaffrey and Paul Mannion coming back I think for Dublin they're, they're nearly postponing the future as long as they can because that t- if, if, if the three of us were to pick a Dublin 15 now it would look All-Ireland worthy but I think if we were to take three or four players There's a touch of the one last hurrah Pat Gilroy back in the backroom team there's a touch of uh, we'll meet Kerry again we'll, we'll beat them and that'll be it My issue the last day with the Cork game was Cork would have won that game if Jack hadn't been introduced if um, James hadn't been introduced would it not have been incumbent on um, Desi to hold them back and see can the guys he's trying to develop get them over the line you are obviously you know putting off the inevitable yeah yeah, and even if you look like if, if you were to put together a list of the players who have left the Dublin panel since 2020 and a list of players who've come in to replace them and we were to you know put together a kind of a quality assessment there's no doubt that the panel has 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 gone down like that but they're coming down from a pretty high base and it's yeah, just sure. a question of where they are at the moment is that going to be good enough to get them over the line We are on the Saturday panel with uh, Conor McKeown and Sarah Donovan if you want to text us on anything you can on 53106 Sarah just going to go to the break I'll just let you know by the way folks in the uh, championship it is Coventry 1 uh, Sunderland nil. that is the latest score so that match is uh, into the second half uh, Ulster have beaten the Sharks 31 points to 24 Harry Sheridan with the latest try there so Ulster winning by 7 points down in South Africa and plenty of matches in the Premier League kicking off at 3 o'clock uh, Everton Aston Villa Leeds Southampton Leicester Arsenal West Ham Nottingham Forest Bournemouth Manchester City is a half 5 start and then Liverpool away to Crystal Palace at 7.45 plenty to talk about between now and half 2 we'll do that on the Saturday panel after this this is Off the Ball Saturday on News Talk. John Duggan with you three to five. You can text us five three one zero six. Tweet us at Off the Ball. Remember, folks, Brayburn Coffee is the official coffee partner of OTB. Brayburn Coffee is the first to offer self serve iced coffee on the go with dairy and non dairy milk options. Try Brayburn at Apple Green today. We're all over the Six Nations, Italy and Ireland two fifteen start, and Rome will have everything up to date for you as we go through the afternoon. This is part two of the Saturday panel discussing the hot topics in sport right now with the former All Ireland winner. 
with the Camogie Kimor- team and the ex-Dublin Camogie and Cork City player Sarah Donovan and the Irish independent sports writer Conor McKeown. If you want to text us and anything you can on 53106. We were just before the break talking about GA counties, the state of the nation in terms of where everybody is in the league at the moment. Kerry, uh, Connor, uh, the All-Ireland champions, the league, obviously not the priority, we know that, but can they hit the ground running now, running into the spring? Are you seeing anybody coming through? No, I think that's the, you know, I don't think their performances or their results in the first couple of weeks will make any odds to Jack O'Connor. It was well flagged that they weren't going to be tearing up trees at this time of year. That's exactly what you'd expect. You know, I think they came home from holiday the week before that court game in the, the Munster League. So there was literally no chance of anybody um, putting on a decent show. But I think the worry is for them... Um, what you're looking for in an all-earning winning team is three or four people to come from nowhere or not from nowhere but from somewhere other than the winning team and put pressure on the players that are there. I think ideally a manager would like to have two or three new players in the team if at all possible just to kind of keep it fresh and you know like Pat Warren was there he was taking off at half time the last day Michal Burns who's been kind of a good weapon off the bench for Kerry in the last few years he got two starts and he was off the last day at half time so I think that the worry for Jack O'Connor would be if they keep going back to the same players over and over and over again. Um, like that team last year, it was like a perfect storm. You know, that they set up well defensively, the age profile of the team, getting the season they did out of Clifford, all of those. But you tend to find that a, you know, a team like that, they'll pick up one or two injuries. Somebody will lose form along the way. The way they defend, you know, will teams put more pressure in certain areas after being able to analyse them that bit more? Um, so that that's the issue for Kerry really is that you know you do want to have two or three players that are making it look like they're going to force your hand a bit and for Jack O'Connor the players that are doing that are in the positions where it's very unlikely they're going to get into the team you know you're not going to displace Sean O'Shea you're not going to displace Paddy Clifford and you're certainly not going to displace David Clifford so yeah they're the issues as I'd see them for Kerry but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they won't be panicking just yet Is there a bolter this year Mayo have started well in the league. Galway got the All Ireland final last year. Armagh to Rome. Uh, well, Armagh be the team that I would consider to if you if you consider them a bolter. I think there's huge potential there. Um, I think they're great to watch. I think they're a really interesting team. It, like it's not a huge leap to say they could have made a final last year. You know they they're very clo- they lost to Galway on penalties in the quarter final and they would have played Derry in a semi final. So hard to even hear that being described. I know, it's crazy. But to watch them play football, I, I think what's what's really interesting and admirable about them is there tends to be a bit of a copycat dynamic at the top level of intercounty football. What works for a particular team, you see it in a lot a lot of other teams. Um but I don't think that's how this Armagh management work. Um and they kick the ball an awful lot more than other teams. You see that some of the scores that Ryan O'Neill kicks they get the ball into them quickly and very, very early. And they also have, as far as I can see, the best use of that fly style goalkeeper because, you know, you've seen it with other goalkeepers before, but like, you know, there are times when Rory Began will come out a goal and he'll take a hand pass and a halfway line and give another hand pass and trip. But with, with Rafferty, he tends to come out when the play is about to slow down where they've kind of hit an opposition wall and then he comes out and he's free to get on the ball and he delivers it really quickly. So I think there's a lot to like about Armagh. Um, they had issues with discipline last year that was the one area where they're going to have to tighten up this year because whatever anybody says it's a massive drain it's a massive drain on energy if you're going into the appeals process it can be a drain on resources if you've got players who are missing two or three games with suspensions but from a football point of view um, and from a, a watchability point of view I think Armagh are a really interesting team to watch
all these new managers in hurling, uh, Sarah, this year in, in the men's game, Pat Ryan, your own county, Cork, Liam Cahill, Derek Ling, David Fitzgerald. How must they be feeling right now with what they've seen early doors, to use that football cliche in the hurling league? Uh, two games down. Um, Cork, obviously going very well. Kilkenny will be the team that probably haven't found form yet. Um, interesting that the Fitzgibbon is now finished. So it'll be interesting to see this weekend what players will be introduced from all sides. Uh, we're looking for depth ac- across the, the different teams. You saw Mikey Kiley score four goals the last day for UL. Um, and for Waterford, he's been kind of used in fits and starts. So the managers actually haven't had their players, you know, un- uninterrupted uh, for the last month and a half because of the fits. So this weekend, I know there's a couple of debuts for Cork. Uh, Ethan Toomey's in for Cork. A lot of changes for Cork as well. Uh, Pat Ryan has the, I suppose, the advantage of having such depth in his squad that he's 40, 45 players that he's going to get to see over the league. Kilkenny, I don't know if they have the same depth. Um, and what I didn't like about Kilkenny uh, last week was their first touch was awful. The basics, the things that I suppose were their mainstays under Brian Cody were absent. They looked really nervous. They looked very different. Um, and you can have off days but you shouldn't be having an off day against Tip. They're the team that you that you look to, you know, set your barometer against. And that was my issue with Kilkenny last week is was Tip is the team that they love to take on and, and they looked so unlike themselves. Um, from Limerick's point of view, their depth is just scary. Absolutely scary. Uh, Shane O'Brien, the last day for Limerick, he's not even the size or makeup of, of the Limerick lads that are there currently, but he caused awful hassle. Um Adam English, stunning, stunning hurler um, in the vein of Peter Casey, like really, really uh, penetrative forward uh, in, in, I suppose, in Michael Houlihan, uh, Barry Murphy uh, pairing with Darrow Donovan. They've just got options coming from all sides. And where Connor was talking about, you know, Kerry and players, you know, pushing different players and, and not necessarily having players come through. I think in Limerick, it's a completely different situation because... Kyle Hayes can play wing back, centre forward. He can play midfield. John Kiley has the, I suppose, the advantage of being able to move his pivotal players around the field and bring in these guys who are showing form. Other teams don't have that luxury. Yeah, like I think Limerick are just, you know, like they're incredibly good. You know, like <laughs> it, I, I mean, it's, it's yeah. sometimes like this, this, this whole thing about the regeneration of the team that nearly wasn't part of the deal. You know, I think everybody in Hurling was getting behind going, OK, well, this is brilliant that a county like Limerick is having this kind of period of dominance. Um, but, but it will end because it's it Limerick. Won't. Yeah, but, but, but I think as well as that, people kind of console themselves by saying, well, anything they have coming through is true. But this is the first year now that this team has seen like there's, there's the fair chance now that between last year's All-Ireland final and say for the sake of argument this year's All-Ireland final that the team will have changed significantly like remember that like the last day the, like they absolutely hammered Clare they didn't have Aaron Galan. we don't know what the story is with Galan. Mm. they didn't have Declan Hannan who's the most decorated captain in the history of the game they didn't have the hurler of the year like this Barry Nash wasn't Barry Nash him. wasn't there so like they're they're in a place where people might talk about the Dublin footballers during that five in a row thing but in all of those All-Irelands except for 2018 Dublin just about one. You know, the thing that defined that Dublin team was that in the big games against the teams that were almost as good as them, they produced the big plays in the big matches. But Limerick are wiping teams here. Like, I think they're, they're, they're further ahead of the pack now 
than Dublin ever were in football. Um, and it's noticeable that in the four All-Ireland finals that they have played in the last five years, they've played four different teams. And had they, the year that they lost to Kilkenny, had they won that game, they would have played a fifth different, they would have played tip in the final that year. So, like, there's a load of jockeying position for position that's going on beneath them. But it's not like there's a contender that's kind of building and getting closer and closer and eventually will topple them a bit like Tip did to the four in a row Kilkenny team that was obvious that they were coming the, the, the story of the kind of chasing pack in the last few years in hurling is somebody rises up and has a crack and then disappears off into the thing and I think as we sit here like we can make a case for five or six teams to be the challenger this year but I just can't see any of them actually coming up to where Limerick are Do you agree with that? I do I do based on the fact that Cork's under right success. Henry Shefflin, maybe a more physical team in Galway. No, I think Cork are the one to watch just because they have every variety of a good manager. But they have a good manager. But the big, the big thing for me so far with Cork this year, and again, it's only early days, is they have two players in Kieran Joyce and Owen Downey at six and three, yep. who've been incredibly <clears> good. <throat> That's been their weakness. In the la- you'd have to go back as far as nearly the Rock and Ronan Curran for the last time the Cork had those two pivotal positions nailed down they've had a huge amount of rotation like non-stop that those positions I think they will only be disappointed that Mark Coleman's not around this year because he like alongside um, alongside those two players that have a very very serious defence but like the last day against Galway it was um, Decky Dalton and Conor Lahan that did the, mm-hmm. did the business you know against Limerick it was it was Horgan um, and Robbie O'Flynn so like they have a lot going up on, on for themselves up front it's nearly deciding which alignment works best but they have three and six nailed down presuming that those two young players continue in that role this year I think that they look the likeliest to kind of come up to where Limerick are you were saying Galway earlier and I can understand that one as well yeah I suppose physically they meet tomorrow Galway Limerick yeah, yeah it's just uh, Galway physically are the only team that match Limerick mm. Size, you know, size wise, um, Cork are are slowly plugging in lads who are, you know, that six foot, six foot one, six foot two who can take them on. But Galway have been at that kind of physicality level. Like Carol McInerney shouldered a fella the last day, and he, like that's I suppose that's what I'm probably a little kind of worried about. That I don't know if Owen Downey has that presence that Gerald McInerney has right now or or will he have developed it by the start of the championship I think that's asking a lot if you look at pound for pound a full back Owen Downey versus Garrow McInerney so that's where Galway are ahead Right we're talking about uh, the current state of the nation in sport with Sarah Donovan the former Cork Dublin Camogie player and Cork City player and Conor McKeon of the Irish Independent uh, just on, on Camogie it just seems to me there's three teams that dominate Camogie Kilkenny, Cork and Galway uh, is that healthy is that going to change Well last weekend Tip beat Galway and Clare beat Kilkenny, which is great news for Camogie. Um, I, I think from th- from a development point of view, it comes down to the clubs, okay? And in Dublin, the club championships are competitive to a degree, but they're not competitive enough. The standard at club level isn't bringing on players quickly enough to f- develop players to a, an inter-county level. It has to happen, and the Camogie are responsible for this. The club setups have to improve their training. They have to improve the competition elements for players. And this comes into men's hurling as well, like in the likes of Leash, in the likes of Westmead, in the likes of uh, Carlo. The club championships have to improve to allow the players to become better players at an earlier age so that they can become, I suppose, high performance players much quick, much more quickly and close that gap. That's what that's what it boils down to. It probably does need it though. Like I don't know. I 
I might have done say seven of the last nine Camogie finals and mm. like some pairing of the same three counties have been there and you can see maybe even a ladies football last year with Donegal and Kerry mm. and the, you know Armagh and, and that sense you sort of need to shake things up and that's maybe why the Lim- the goodwill to Limerick is still going on because I think if Kilkenny or Tipperary or Cork could be having the level of dominance I think by now people would be well and truly sick of it but we're probably we, were, we were sick of Kilkenny's dominance <laughs> to a degree but if you look time. if you look at the ladies football and the upsurge in women's involvement in ladies football it has brought on the individual clubs it's brought on the club game it's improved players incrementally and now that's having how many teams realistically can win the ladies football all Ireland this year I would say four so we're talking Dublin Cork Meath and Galway Galway I wouldn't be surprised Donegal are in there I I wouldn't be surprised if Amy Macken was around at Armagh like there's probably six or seven teams that could make a final winning it might be a bit different but it's hard to know because with Dublin we were just even Mm. speaking off air there's been a huge changeover from the squad that won four in a row from the Meath team like we don't know what the story's going to be um, with the couple of players who are away and they've changed management so you never know for certain either so like I wouldn't like to predict a I wouldn't like to predict an all-Ireland Oh and obviously sorry Kerry are flying it so yeah there is there's a much different um, base in ladies football yeah, so it's uh, Antrim one point for Manor, one point in Division 3 of the Allianz Football League. That is in Belfast in Cargan Park. Uh, we'll keep you up to date on the scores elsewhere as they go in. Remember, Ireland Italy is just about to kick off in Rome. Uh, Coventry won Sunderland nil in the Championship. Liam Hayes, it's a very um, uh, open, emotional at times interview, which is a must-listen from Joe during the week, Joe Malloy. Um, superb piece. Definitely worth your time, folks, on the OTB Podcast Network. Uh, yeah, he had no interest in going to team reunions and wouldn't be a close with his Meath teammates. Would this be unusual? Do we have this kind of romantic notion that the teams we follow, that they're all going to be mates forever? Uh, <laughs> well, I think we do have these romantic notions. You know, I think... Like, it's like the, a band you like or something. Yeah, yeah. like the, the teams that we love or that we relate to or that we connect with, we like to think that these players... Kind like of the Antino Tool, a beautiful documentary there at Christmas. Well, that's their... So it's a funny thing. That team, that Dublin team of the 70s, like to... to, to from all the teams that I've ever kind of looked into or or read about, they seem to be the closest. Like there was a genuine brotherhood there among them. Um, but you just wonder about the. It depends on how they interact while they're there. So they like that team had a, a big tradition with Kevin Heffernan, where they had a shed in Parnell Park and they had these big long team meetings, and people would air all the problems that they were having in their lives. And it wasn't just football related. It was to do with everything that was going on. And I think through that, they became incredibly close. Where there were teams that they would have played against that wouldn't have had that same togetherness. Like they wouldn't they wouldn't necessarily be as close. Like I spoke to I spoke to Stephen McNamara recently, who was involved in the Clare teams in 95 and 97. Um, and it was just after they had been the Jubilee team for the 97. They'd missed the 95 one because of COVID. Um, and I said it must be great to get together. He says no, we like we get together all the time. The vast majority of that team are still very, very close, and you can imagine them being close because they were such a breakthrough team. Like they were so iconic. The the thing that they came together to achieve was so intense. You'd imagine that it it would kind of mold you all together. But there are other instances of teams that haven't been close at all. Are you close like, to your former teammates? Some there was there was a few at the wedding. They there was a few travel to Italy. Two of the Dublin girls. One girl that I played soccer with, Claudine, from 13 in Balancholic, and uh, one of my Cork Muggie teammates, Colette, was out there. But it, the different teams over the years, you, you tend to have pockets of friendships and it's it's no more than being at school or in university. And there's 
colleagues in UCC and teammates in UCC that I'd still have great time for. But you can't you can't carry everyone on the bus, you know. And I think that's the issue is that over the years, the longevity of your career, there's players that you stay in touch with and there's players that you just physically don't get to see anymore. Yeah, I remember talking to somebody who, who played their football in the 90s and then be, was, was a member of a management team more recently. And he said the dynamic had changed a lot because in the 90s when you got onto an, in, well, onto the county team that he played for, people were trying to see where you were tough enough for. Mm. So no matter where you were from, you were being slagged about where you were from. No matter what you did in your other spare time, you were being slagged for that too. And because of that then, clicks built up within the dressing room. Whereas now there's a much, to, that would never happen, you know. And it's all about respecting everyone and where they come from and everyone being aware of. And I think that probably promotes closeness. Maybe, maybe, maybe yeah. we'll see that the teams that are around now will be a little bit closer in 20 years time than the teams of 20 years it, ago are now. There's, it's interesting now with Vera Paul and the Irish setup, and she used to pick 26 players now going to Australia and they've obviously created a, a culture within that group and it's been formed by players who've been there since the very beginning and the losses and those players aren't going to be on the plane going to Australia. There's massive competition. They're going head to head. I don't know how they're going to maintain that closeness when it's literally going to be cutthroat and I'm going to be going at the expense of you. I think when they get into the nitty gritty though of the matches, a bit like Roy leaving, you know, you have to just move on and get to the game and we're now playing the game and if they win the first game. I, I'm talking about, I suppose, the next three camps and there's probably f- 35 players who are looking at um, being, being on the plane going to Australia and you're very close to somebody but you're in direct competition, especially the strikers. There's five, six of those players there who it'll boil down to whether I'm better than you and uh, it, when I was playing with Cork initially back in, in the early noughties there was that sense that it wasn't about the culture you were, you didn't meet as often so you were in direct competition with your teammates and sometimes you know it didn't allow for close relationships because there was clicks and there was competition Yeah, I wonder as well and this is a very sort of basic thing but Intercounty players now do very little socialising. Mm. You know that that is it's it, it's part of being an intercounty player, but it's also a lifestyle thing that, that has changed with generations. And it's not as if players are going for, you know, you, they might have a couple of nights out, or maybe one or two team bonding nights that are all good, clean, organised fun. But once once like it's so intense being part of an intercounty environment, yes, you tend to find that when their season ends, unless they win in All Ireland or something, the people are very quick to go back to where they're from. And I, I don't know, you know, having said earlier on that, you know, people might have more of a connection when they're together. I think without that social element to it, to the same degree as it was there before, it's hard to know how they would kind of have that moment. We've got about two minutes left. Uh, Ireland leading 5-0. We'll going over to Ashley and Rome very shortly um, in the Six Nations. So uh, Ross Byrne there uh, missing the conversion. James Ryan with the tribe. We'll go over very shortly. Uh, just before we go, um, I've never been to this Rome-Italy game. The best ever trip away trip you've been on, Sarah? Oh, the Derby, United and, and Man City, uh, 2019. United won a 2-1. I was in the Man City end, so I was wearing not a No red. celebrations. No celebrations. Okay, well, you have yeah. to change. You've got back to the Stratford end now <laughs> in the future. And yourself, Connor? Uh, well, mine is not. Uh, mine is um, in 2002. My dad's a Newcastle fan and my seven brother are Arsenal fans. And we went to St. James's Park. And we're behind the goal when Dennis Berkham scored a goal. There was just a flurry of feet and movement. And there was no there was no screen in St. James's Park and nobody had videos on their phones. So nobody had a clue what had happened. And it was only after we'd gone out after the match and we were in a chipper and Match of the Day had been on and somebody said, 
were you at the game today you saw, you saw the greatest goal in the history of the Premier League and six hours later <laughs> we hadn't a clue what had happened so I'm putting that down because I saw one of the greatest goals of all time right in front of me but we didn't know it until we got home and watched it on the telly Conor McKeown of the Irish Independent and Sarah Donovan the former Camogie player from Cork Dublin and ex-Cork City player thank you so much for coming on the Saturday panel and lending your wisdom this afternoon this is Off the Ball Saturday on News Talk let's go to Rome Ireland against Italy in the Six Nations what's happening Ashley O'Reilly Yes, John, five minutes gone. It's Italy nil, Ireland five. An exciting start for Ireland. Exactly what we wanted. We thought it was James Lowe who got over after a minute and 30 seconds. It was Bundy to Van der Fleer to Keenan to James Lowe. But he just dropped the ball before he grounded it, grounded it so it was deemed not a try. A minute later, James Lowe to, J- to James Ryan and he easily got over. And once again, it was Bundy Aki with a great pass out of the tackle. It was Ross Byrne that missed the conversion, but not the easiest of conversions. A great crowd here, great atmosphere. Five minutes, 30 seconds gone. It's Italy nil, Ireland five. Thanks so much, Ashton, for the moment. Uh, ladies, the National Football League Division 1, sponsored by Little Kerry, 1-5, me three points in Brosna. And in the Camogie League Division 1A, Dublin two points, Tipperary six points in Division 3 of the Football League, Antrim three points for Mana, four points in Belfast. We're back after the break, paying tribute to John Motson with Mark Lawrenson. OTB Sports Rugby. Ross at 10th, probably the media were a bit harsh on him over the last few years because from what I saw inside the doors, someone who's calm and can make plays happen. Everyone, I think, is really comfortable with him. Subscribe to the Rugby Stream on the OTB Sports app now.